Well, let's finish up our three-part Christmas series this morning. We're only a day past Christmas. We can linger on Luke 2 a little longer, can't we? Surely we can. Uh, So open your Bibles to Luke chapter 2, would you? We've been looking at the first three paragraphs in this chapter, about 20 verses, and we're seeing a single truth from each paragraph. Let me just review those truths for you. Truth number one was that Christmas is history and prophecy culminating in God's perfect time and God's perfect son, Christ. We saw that in verses one through seven. And then Christmas Eve, in much more of a shortened fashion, we saw through verses eight through 14 that Christmas is heaven's announcement of God's good news for man's deepest need and God's own glory. And here's that news, Jesus the Savior has come. And I wanna look at verses 15 through 20 this morning And I want to see this truth, go ahead and jot it down, take a picture of it, try to put this into your memory bank, that Christmas results in the simultaneous and urgent response to treasure and tell of God's work in giving his son. Will you say that with me? Here's the third truth from the third paragraph we're going to see unfold this morning. Together, Christmas results in the simultaneous and urgent response to treasure and tell of God's work in giving his son. Let's read our text together. Can we, your Bibles are open. Luke 2, verse 15, follow with me. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds then said to one another, let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. There's the, uh, a reference again back to the announcement from heaven. It was God's uh, work It was his initiation, his proactive step towards us. The shepherd said, let's go see this thing which God has told us about. Verse 16, and they went with haste. Underline the two words with haste. And they found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. You know, that was one of the signs mentioned in verse 12, that there'd be a baby in a manger and swaddling cloths. Here's exactly what they were told they would find. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. So they spread this news abroad, not just that they had seen this, but they had been told that they would see this. That's what the text says, right? That they made known the saying that had been told to them. So I I, I sense that the Shepherds are not just amazed at what they saw, but the fact that what they were told is exactly what they saw. Like they're connecting the dots. Verse 18, and all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. They weren't wondering at the shepherds, by the way. They were wondering at what the shepherds told them. They were marveling. They were amazed. I think what they told them is what they were told and that what they found was just what they were told. And then in contrast to the shepherds and the folks that they told and how they wondered in this publicity that was going on, Mary instead, verse 19, treasured up all these things and she pondered them in her heart. So to answer the question in the song, Mary, did you know? I would say the answer is yes. Verse 20, and the shepherds returned glorifying and praising God for all that they had heard 
and seen, look at this next phrase again, as it had been told them. In fact, you should circle or underline the phrase in verse 20, as it had been told them. Draw a line back to the phrase in verse, what is it, 17? The saying that had been told them. You kind of get this, this repetitious flavor in this text that something's told to the shepherds. The shepherds are now telling it because what they were told is what they saw. And in the middle of this, of course, here's Mary treasuring all that she knew was happening, all that she had been told and pondering these and knowing, man, this is God's work on our behalf. Just a beautiful text of two things occurring. You, you see people treasuring what happened and you see people telling about what happened. Again, just some phrases that would indicate both of these in this text. I'll just mention them briefly to you. The phrase with haste, you typically don't hurry unless you're quite interested, unless there's something very intriguing uh, valuable, important, we can say there was a treasuring already going on with the shepherds. Let's go see. This is amazing. This is wonderful. Of course, they made known the saying, and you talk about what you love. That's clear. They were talking about what they saw and what they treasured and what they found to be marvelous. All who heard it, they wondered. The word here is it implies the idea of marveling. And of course, Mary treasured these things. She pondered them. She thought about them. She meditated upon them. And of course, the shepherds then returned, glorifying and praising God. You could use our common word, they worship the Lord. And so you just really see that in these last few verses, there's a real blanket of treasuring and telling that's just emerging and surfacing from these verses. So can we see this take-home truth again? That Christmas results, and when we say Christmas, what we celebrate, the coming of Christ, his first advent. That truth in reality, time, and space, that historical, evidential fact, it does result in a treasuring and a telling. And these are simultaneous, urgent responses. Notice in the text, there doesn't seem to be a sequential nature necessarily. They're just things happening all the time. They're treasuring them and they're talking about them. As they talk about them, they're treasuring them. And so there's this, this simultaneous and urgent, and I'm gonna use the word reaction here. And I'll even say it's a, a human natural reaction. Now, when I say that, don't think it's something that they mustered up on their own. I'm not trying to say that. I'm saying that it occurred in their physical body, their biological systems, their emotional networks, we'll call it. It's something they experienced physically, and it's what they experienced naturally and physically to the supernatural work of God. And so that's what's happening in this text. They can't contain this irrepressible desire and reaction to what they see God doing to his actions. Please keep that in mind. This text isn't showing us necessarily a, a planned, trained response. They didn't go to a seminar, three ways to respond to the birth of Christ. They didn't do that. Six ways to talk about Jesus. Eight tips to loving Christ more. None of that's happening. They're, they're just realizing God's told us something and what he said is actually coming true. This is amazing. And so in, in, in somewhat of a natural human reactive way, they're just urgently, simultaneously responding by treasuring what's happening and then talking about it. It's overflowing from them. 
That's why I say these are natural reactions to God's supernatural actions. Now, as I pondered that, as I meditated on this text a bit, and just the, the flow of it, the, the basic face value reading of it, I began to ask myself, are there other places in Scripture, are there other people in Scripture where this kind of thing occurred, where when they saw God work, they couldn't stop their reaction? It became irrepressible. It became uh, unstoppable. Like God is doing something and I've got to talk about it or I've got to treasure it. Or it's overwhelming to the point that it becomes not only visible, but it's verbal. There's a few of those. Let me take some time to walk you through some of them. Places we see treasuring and telling. And just to be aware that not both are always mentioned in each of these illustrations. One may accentuate another one. However, I think that they are both in view in general. Let me just kind of walk you through a few of them. I think about Andrew in John 1, 41. Make, make a list of these if you want to. Maybe look at them throughout the week. I think about Andrew. He, he was um, Peter's brother. We don't hear a lot about Andrew. But you realize that Andrew is the one who brought Peter to Christ. And if you read John 1, 41, it says that he went to Simon, his brother, and he said, Simon, we found the Messiah. You gotta come see him. I mean, if you just read the story and you kind of feel the heartbeat of it, you kind of get this sense like Andrew was just stupefied that the one they had been waiting for was actually now in front of them. He was talking to him and he had to go tell somebody. So he's treasuring this discovery and it just comes out and he says, Peter, you gotta come. You gotta see who I met. He's the one we've been waiting for. So you see treasuring and telling in Andrew's story. You know, Christ told some parables in which we see both treasuring and telling as strong um, uh, themes. For instance, Matthew 13, 44, there's the parable of the hidden treasure. Here, verse 34, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up, and in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys the field. He doesn't just buy the treasure, right? He's like, I'm getting the whole field. And in his joy, he sells everything. You see this idea of, of valuing something so deeply that it moves you to action? I mean, he, 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 it's almost as if he, he stumbles across the treasure and the field. But once he realizes what he has, man, he'll go to great lengths to make sure he doesn't miss it. The very next verse speaks of the merchant who finds a pearl of great value. This is Matthew 13, 45. Listen to this. The kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls who on finding one pearl of great value, he went and sold all that he had and bought it. And he was looking for many pearls, but he found one. And they sold everything and bought it. Again, you see the idea of discovering and treasuring and then action. In Andrew's case of telling. I like David's response in Psalm 51. This is a psalm that describes his not only repentance after his sin, but of his joy in God's forgiveness. 
Listen to these verses from David describing how he treasures God's work in his life after his sin and what he knows will be the result. This is Psalm 51, 12 through about 14. David writes, Restore to me the joy of your salvation. Uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. When you read all of Psalm 51, you, you realize David is just uh, overwhelmed that God would forgive, and so now his mouth is open to worship and to praise and to tell of God's greatness. Again, treasuring and telling these principles, these themes are running through these people in these passages. Of course, there's the other Mary, not Mary, the mother of Jesus, but the Mary of Mark 14. She brought to Christ the alabaster box of very expensive perfume. And the Bible records that she broke this flask or this box. This is Mark 14, verse 3. And then she poured it over his head. There's other stories about um, that maybe the same story, maybe it's not, but that she broke the oil over his feet and she wiped his feet with her hair. So you can debate on your own which stories are the same, which are different. I'll let you tackle that maybe over dinner one night, right? Here's Mary, though, taking a very expensive perfume. And the disciples who were watching, one of them said she wasted it. But she didn't because she treasured Jesus more than anything she had and she wasn't afraid at all in public to go ahead and display that. You see, treasuring and telling, she told a lot just by her actions. I think about Paul. I struggled to figure out which verse I wanted to use. There's so many from Paul that would describe his deep love of the Lord and his compulsion to speak of the Lord. I chose 2 Corinthians 5, 14 and 15 because of this phrase when Paul writes this, for the love of Christ controls us. The word there is compel or the old King James uses the word constrain. It has the idea that, that something has such a tight grip on you, it, it hems you in in such a way that you have no other choice. And Paul says here, that's what the love of Christ does to him. It hems him in, it, it fences him in, it embraces him, it holds him so tightly that he has no other choice but to speak of Christ. And that he's not speaking of the law or some list. He says, that's the love of Christ so strongly, you know, uh, grabbing him, so to speak. Here's the rest of the verse. The love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. You see what Paul's saying? He treasures Christ so deeply in what Christ has done that he's given his whole life away for Christ's purposes. We don't live for ourselves any longer. We live for Christ. After all, it's his love that was displayed on the cross for us. So his love constrains us, compels us, controls us to give our life away for him. Six examples, six people, six passages in which we see similar 
principles, similar themes that, that when you really look at what God has done for us, two things emerge. You begin to have an overwhelming sense of treasuring, which undoubtedly results in an overwhelming urge to tell. It's the unstoppable, natural human reaction to the incredible, supernatural action of God. In each of these cases and in Luke chapter 2, they were each urgently and passionately responding to something outside of themselves. They knew they couldn't produce it, manufacture it, but they were encountering what they needed and yet they were fully aware they didn't cause it. Hear me, church. This is probably the root reason that in these examples, as well as in Luke 2, there's this treasuring and telling because they're realizing, man, someone's moving on my behalf. God is acting on my behalf. He's causing and bringing everything I need, and, and I'm not even, I, I don't deserve this. I didn't cause it. I didn't negotiate this, bargain for it. This is a work of grace, and suddenly it overwhelms them. And their natural human reaction then is to treasure and tell. If you think you earned it, you'd brag. If you think you deserved it, negotiated for it, kind of leveraged for it, you would brag, and you would be the bigger part of the story. And you don't find in these examples that the human involved is ever the bigger part of the story. It's always, look what God has done for us. We, as Travis said, who are the unrighteous, the undeserving. We didn't cause any of this, and yet God has acted for our best interest. He has loved us in this way. I think when you really take a long, hard look and see what God has done and that everything God has done is what he told us he would do, it does result in a, a treasuring and a telling. It will result in the response of adoration. I think that may be the best summary word to give this third truth. Adoration. Now think with me about the three words we've used to summarize our three truths, would you? The very first truth, our summary word was incarnation. In the second truth, our summary word was salvation. And now, in this third paragraph, or this third truth, our summary word is what? Adoration. And this is really the, uh, can I say, a general progression of the gospel story. Christ takes the action, becomes a man, to meet our deepest need that we cannot meet ourselves. He proactively moves first to solve our sin problem. And in doing so, he provides salvation. And our response then should be to adore the one who moved on our behalf and became sin for us so that we could be made the righteousness of God. This is, in essence, a three-word summary of of what our life should be. We should behold the incarnation, receive God's salvation, and then respond in adoration. As I think about this word, I, I 
looked up definitions and I thought about how can I maybe just try to express this to our people. And, and so I've kind of wrote my own definition for adoration in light of this text and in light of maybe other scriptures. Here's kind of how I define it. It's to be so impressed that you have to express. Can you say that with me? To be so impressed that you have to express. In other words, something is so strongly internalized. You're imprinted. You're tattooed. You're impressed. You're pressed upon with something so um, weighty and glorious and marvelous that it, it can't help but bleed out every one of your pores. I mean, you're stamped. You're pressed. And so anytime someone bumps into you, nudges you, speaks with you, talks with you, you know what just kind of oozes out? It's the work of God. To be so impressed that you have to express it. I know this is true in life, but I don't want to admit that often we run from this truth, spiritually speaking. I mean, we know this is innately true. There's not a single spouse in this room who doesn't talk about their spouse naturally, reactively, warmly. Um, just you're, you're, you're so impressed by your spouse. And when I say impressed, I don't mean like a, an image kind of like, oh, you really impressed me. I don't mean some kind of, uh, you know, a status thing or you're seeing some image. I mean, they have weighed in on you so much with their service and love that when you're with your friends, it's just, it comes out of you. You, you talk about your spouse. You, you, quote unquote, glory in them. You brag about them like you love your spouse. Why would you not talk about them a lot? Because they have so impressed you. I'm hoping that's your marriage. And so it's just natural, like, of course I'm gonna talk about the person I'm committed to living the rest of my days on this earth with. Like, that's just a natural reaction. I adore that person, humanly speaking. I mean, we know this is true when we're so deeply impacted, it comes out of us. But sometimes we find so many odd ways to excuse that very same principle spiritually. Now, I'm not trying to add unnecessary guilt. I'm not trying to bring preacher guilt or man-made guilt, I am asking us to stop and think, why is it that sometimes we know this is an innately true principle of life, that what you treasure and value, what deeply impacts you just comes out. And yet when it comes to our faith, what God's done for us, our salvation, his work on our behalf, sometimes it feels like we're pulling teeth to get someone to talk about it. And so we sign up for seminars galore on how to witness. And I'm being a little facetious here. Can you leave me some room here? We'll sign up for a class. And I'm not saying those aren't helpful. But sometimes I, I find personal conviction that I have to have such training to talk about something that I'm supposed to really treasure. Like, I've never been to a class on how to brag about your wife. I've never been to that class in my life. It just kind of comes out of me. Or my parents your children. 
things you value. Can I just be very plain with you? Like even some of you, you, the way you talk about your teams. It's amazing the kind of love I sense from you when you talk about teams who play sports that has like no impact on hardly anything. And yet it just bleeds out of you. And yet though sometimes it's like, can, can we talk about Jesus in the same way? And it's like, well, I, I don't want to say right now. I have nothing to say. I just, it's very personal. Like really? Now it's suddenly personal? And so I just, I'm just thinking this all through in my mind this way. Man, why do we struggle with adoration so much when it comes to the work of God in our life? When we know we should be so impressed, stamped, imprinted, that it, it will ooze and flow and bleed from every one of our pores. Now, I'm trusting that you don't feel guilt right now. What I'm trusting is that your heart longs for more of that. That's what my heart longs for. Toward what That's first on my lips. I've got a long way to go. But as I think about these shepherds and these other examples and this principle, I, I just this week say, God, keep impressing upon me. Keep imprinting me with your work on my behalf that was so undeserved that I will treasure and tell of it. I was wondering, you know, what, what are some of the reasons that we're hesitant to adore, to treasure and tell? I don't know all the reasons. There's a few that I can name that are probably on the list. I think sometimes familiarity is one of them. It is true that familiarity can breed contempt. It doesn't have to be true, but it is a possible answer. That we've just grown calloused. That things around us seem routine. That we suddenly expect a certain kind or a certain level of, of uh, interaction. And we're, we're no longer grateful for, for even the little things. And we've just grown, grown kind of calloused. I think one reason would be that sometimes we're just not, I shouldn't say sometimes we're not. I, I think there are people who are unregenerate who are trying to act like they're regenerated. And they're trying to manufacture and produce an adoration that can only be given and produced and birthed by God's work. That's one possible reason. Other reasons such as bitterness, a pain point. I've, I've learned that not dealing with pain points in your life, places where resentment can settle in and just kind of build some scar tissue sometimes or maybe even leave an open wound, it's hard to move past those and to really adore Christ because sometimes there's still this blaming mentality. Looking back and saying, is there a place of unforgiveness you see, it's hard to receive forgiveness when you're still holding grudges, wishing things were even or made right. So there's three. I don't know if one of those fits you. I don't know. There's probably more. I think I'm just circling around this larger idea that, and I can just say it to you as pastorally plain as possible, I don't think adoration should be a struggle when we truly experience and encounter the work of God 
Is that plain enough for you? And yellow flags go up in my life when I feel like I'm kind of trying to produce something or project something. I need to stop and take inventory and say, Lord, adoration should just flow. This treasuring and telling should just be a natural human reaction when I look at the supernatural action you've taken on my behalf. So I don't want you to leave with um, a list of three ways to be a better adorer, okay? (laughs) That's not what I'm after today. I don't want to give you Todd's tips. I don't want to provide action points, and maybe I should, I don't know. Here's what I want to do this morning. I just want to ask you to think about your own tank, your own supply. And if it's running low, don't press the pedal harder. Put the right fuel in the tank. Don't pedal faster. And the right fuel in the tank, what will cause us to begin to, and I use this word appropriately here, to naturally, simultaneously, spontaneously adore Christ, to treasure and tell of him in multiple ways, is putting the fuel of his work on our behalf. The undeserved righteousness of Christ given to us. Like putting that in your tank, that will do more to bring you to just adoring and treasuring and valuing Christ above all. That's why I want to revisit just one verse with you as we close out this three-part Christmas series. It's the main verse of Luke 2. And it holds so much theology. I could only address it for 12 minutes Christmas Eve. It's a beautiful verse. It's packed with truth. And it's the fuel for your tank. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. What had been foretold was happening. God was moving on your behalf. You didn't deserve it. I didn't deserve it. But God kept every one of his promises in the person of Jesus Christ. And Jesus, in all humility and condescension, took on the form of a servant and lived a perfect life and gave that life then on the cross as a sacrifice for your sins, for my sins, not for his and it was, it was pleasing to God. It was right for God to pay for our sin through the sinless Son of God and to raise him from the dead. So now God can bestow upon every sinner who calls upon his name the gift of salvation. His incarnation is what leads to our salvation, which should lead to our adoration. So I just want to kind of drop that verse in your lap. And if you've never trusted Christ, but for some reason you're here this morning, you think you kind of stumbled in or maybe just popped in or maybe came with family, I would just ask you 
Trust Christ and his work for you and watch the incredible supernatural action of God begin to produce in you an unbelievable human reaction of adoration to God. And those who are already believers, if things have grown stale or cold or manufactured or rote, maybe it seems a little calloused and cold, maybe familiar, please don't go home and make New Year's resolutions that center around you. Just pick up the word of God and read about all the ways that God has moved on your behalf. Without your consent or permission, (laughs) he acted in time and space history to bring himself into reality to our world and die for us. He asked all men everywhere to repent and believe. Man, just read those scriptures and let them begin to flood you and watch your heart and your tank be filled with the right fuel so that your life becomes a life of treasuring and telling. That's why I think the great, one of the greatest songs during Christmas is that simple phrase, O come, let us adore him. Isn't it? I mean, it so succinctly summarizes what our response should be to God's word. O come, let us adore him. Treasure and tell of him. Oh, come, let us adore him. Oh, come, let us adore him. Christ the Lord. We hope you enjoyed today's message. For more messages, visit firstfamily.church forward slash sermons or subscribe to our podcast feed. Thanks for listening.